chew us out up to a certain point, and then he would switch the focus of his halftime talk. And he would say, I know that you guys can do better. I've seen you do better. You know what you need to do to win this game. So let's go out there in the second half and let's do it. Let's win. Our passage this morning reminds me of that kind of locker room pep talk. Because in chapter 5, verse 11, through chapter 6, verse 8, the writer of Hebrews has been chewing out his listeners pretty good. He told them in verse 11 of chapter 5 that they are dull of hearing. He told them in verse 12 they ought to be teachers by now, but instead they need remedial courses. He told them in verse 12 that they need milk and not meat. He told them in verse 14 that they are spiritually out of shape. They are not practicing. They are not training. And then he gives the warning in chapter 6, verses 4 to 6, to this Hebrew church about the danger of coming up to the edge of Christianity and then going back to Judaism, of coming up to the edge of faith in Christ and then falling away. And he is fearful that some in this flock are in danger of doing that. But he also knows that that is not true of most of them. And so he switches his focus in chapter 6, verses 9 to 12, from warning to encouragement. Notice verse 9. But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. Though we are speaking in this way, harshly warning, we anticipate and are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation. Now this tells us two things about what he just said. It tells us that the warning in verses 4 to 6 is directed at those in the church who are not genuinely saved. The things he was talking about before are the things that are not accompanying salvation. And then the second thing we can say is that he didn't give the warning in chapter 6, verses 4 to 6, so that genuine believers would doubt their salvation. In fact, when we get to verse 11, he says that he wants us to realize the full assurance of hope. He is convinced of better things concerning them. So this is the positive side of the pep talk. What are the things that will turn the second half around? What are the things that accompany salvation? Well, one way to answer that would be to go back to the previous verses and take all those negatives and switch them to the positive. Instead of dull, you should be sharp. Instead of drinking milk, you should be eating meat. Instead of tasting, you should be eating. Instead of sampling, you should be devouring. But rather than do that, the writer goes on to point out three things that accompany salvation. Notice in verse 10, the word love. And then in verse 11, the word hope. And then in verse 12, the word faith. Those are the three fundamental Christian characteristics. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 13, Paul boils it all down to this. He says, but now abide faith, hope, love, these three. And then he says, the fundamental one of all is what? But the greatest of these is love. So we're going to take these three characteristics as he describes them here, and we're going to look at them this morning. The first is love in verse 10. For God is not unjust, so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and still ministering to the saints. Now let me just pause and draw out some things that I see in this verse about love. In fact, I picked out six things. Number one, love is tough. Notice again the beginning of verse 9. He calls them beloved. Now I find it interesting that this is the only place in the book of Hebrews where he calls them 
beloved. And he picks an interesting spot to do it. He's just chewed them out for 12 verses, and now the writer says, you are my loved ones. That's tough love. Now, we live in a day when people's feelings tend to be the chief measure for how to love. If someone else's feelings might be hurt by what I'm going to do, then I tend to say, this is probably not the loving thing to do. But when we think that way, we are really being held hostage by people's sensitivities. Most people think the bottom line of love is not truth, it's not principle, it's not even what's best for the other person. The bottom line of love in most people's mind today is how people feel. And if someone can communicate to me ahead of time that this is going to make them feel really bad, then they keep themselves oftentimes from receiving what is really good. But let me tell you that real love is tough love. The writer of Hebrews says, you're dull of hearing. You ought to be teachers. You're drinking out of a baby bottle instead of eating meat. You're lazy. And oh, by the way, I love you. See, sometimes we think if you raise your voice, that's an unloving thing. But I want to tell you that we need to let the Word of God shape our understanding of love. I am more and more convinced that we have become a nation of victims and whiners and powders and excuse makers. If someone says something negative about us, no matter how constructive it may be, we either slump into a fit of self-justifying self -justifying woundedness, or we go the other extreme and we file a harassment lawsuit against them. It never crossed our mind that maybe what they're telling us is something that we need to hear. So let me tell you something. It's the people who really love you who will confront you and challenge you and correct you. You see, if you're a Christian here today, you are chosen by God, loved by God, forgiven by God, accepted by God, indwelt by God, guided by God, protected by God, strengthened by God. So what would make you need to feel vulnerable and insecure? When you are confronted by someone who is trying to tell you something that you need to correct in your life, you need to realize that's the most loving thing that that person could be doing. And when someone else needs to be corrected, no matter how much their feelings may get hurt, if they need to receive that, then I need to step out in love and tell them. Love is honest. Love is tough. You see, the goal of love is not to protect your feelings. The goal of love is to change your life. And if I stand up here Sunday after Sunday and all you feel is good, then I'm not fulfilling my calling. And I am not loving you enough to warn you, to exhort you, to step on your toes, and to make you squirm. Because you see, love desires the very best for the other person. And the very best for you is not the status quo. The very best for you is not to stay where you are. The very best for you is to become more and more each day like Jesus Christ. You see, I'm okay, you're okay is not love. Some of the most meaningful moments in my life have been times when people set me down and said to me, Dan, we need to tell you something because you are out of line. Now, that doesn't feel good to have somebody tell you that. But it's a meaningful moment in my life because when somebody says that to me, I say, thank you, I needed that. And the writer of Hebrews is expecting that kind of response from his readers because he says in verse 9, I'm expecting better things from you. And so he confronts them out of love. Love is tough. Second thing, love is visible. 
Notice verse 10 again. It says, the love which you have shown. Mark that word. Shown is a Greek word that means to demonstrate. It points to something visible. And how is love shown? Well, he goes on in the verse to say, having ministered and is still ministering to the saints. That word ministering means to serve. And so the writer is saying that he can see how their lives have changed from living for themselves to now living to serve others. Their salvation has resulted in visible evidence. In fact, if you'll notice, he uses the word shown in reference to their love in verse 10. He uses the word show in relation to their hope in verse 11. And then in verse 12, he tells them to be imitators of other people's faith. How do you imitate faith? Well, you have to see it. And that's why he calls these the things that accompany salvation in verse 9, because they are visible. People can see them. The point he's making is that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, it will manifest itself in your life. Just as a newborn baby has unmistakable signs of life, is there, if there is genuine new birth in the life of an individual, there will be unmistakable signs of life. And as we saw in verses 7 and 8 of this chapter, it may take a little while for the rain that falls on the earth to produce either thorns and thistles or a good crop, but it will eventually show itself. And as Jesus said in His parable of the sower, the good soil will produce good fruit. It may be hundredfold, it may be sixtyfold, it may be thirtyfold, but there will be fruit. Genuine salvation, given the opportunity, will produce fruit. And the most prominent fruit is love. I don't think it's a coincidence that in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22, Paul says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. He mentioned it first because it's the primary fruit and love is visible. That's why Jesus could say in John 13, 35, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. How will they know? Because they could see it. Love is visible. And then thirdly, love is prioritized. I couldn't think of a better word, so if you can help me afterwards, I'll take it. Love is prioritized. Look at verse 10 again. It says, the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. In serving others, our love is directed first and foremost toward God. You see, real love doesn't happen horizontally until it first happens vertically. And without the vertical, there is no capacity for the horizontal. 1 John 4.19 says, We love because He first loved us. First is a priority word. It starts with His love for us in our love relationship. There is an order, there is a pattern, there is a priority for love, and it is this. He loves us, then we love Him, then we love others. And you can't bypass that order. Because, you see, it's His love for us and our love for Him that creates the relationship out of which love flows out to other people. That's why Romans 5.5 5 says, The love of God has been poured out within our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Our capacity for love flows out of our relationship with the Lord. That's why Jesus could say in John 13.34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Now if you'd stop right there, that wasn't a new commandment. That was an old commandment. That commandment was given all the way back in Leviticus chapter 19, where it says, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But Jesus gave a new commandment. What made the commandment new? Well, listen to the rest of his statement. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. You see, our love for others begins with his love for us. It flows out of that relationship with him. And that's what makes it a new commandment. And not only is it that relationship that gives us that capacity, but he also demonstrated that love by his lifestyle. 
What did Jesus say in Matthew 22 is the first and greatest commandment of all? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And then that commandment is the basis for the second greatest commandment, and that is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You love the Lord your God first, and then out of that relationship, you love others. Love is prioritized. You know, I've heard people, even well-meaning Christians, say that you must learn to love yourself before you can love God and others. But that's really the reverse of Jesus' commandments. You see, the second commandment assumes that you're already doing the first commandment. And the second commandment assumes that you already love yourself quite well. It says you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's a given. I don't know about you, but I don't need a course in how to love myself. Six easy steps to love me. No, I don't need that course because that is my problem. That is what sin is all about. It is that love that is turned internal and directed toward me. In fact, even the person who goes around dumping on themselves loves themselves. The person who goes around saying, oh, I'm awful, I'm awful, I'm awful. They really love themselves because all they're doing is focusing on themselves. What they need to do is receive God's love, respond to God's love, and then take the focus off of themselves and put that focus on others. Now notice something in verse 10. It says, the love which you have shown toward His name. Now in the Bible, a name is important. We tend to pick names by how they sound or whether somebody in our family was named Mildred. But in the Bible, somebody got a name because it, it really described their character. And oftentimes when a person changed, they would get a new name to reflect their new character. And so here when it says His name, that is representing that all that God is in His person and in His character. It, refer, it refers to all of His attributes and all of His ways. In fact, it's interesting in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 9, it says, God highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. And so what does it mean to love His name? It means to have a passion for His glory, to see God exalted to His true place of honor. And this passage tells us that loving God and loving His name is the basis for all the service that we do to others. Remember when Jesus recommissioned Peter in John chapter 21? Did He come to Him and say, do you love people? Yes, I do. Okay, go serve them. No. Three times He asked Peter, do you love me? And when Peter answered in the affirmative, Jesus said, feed my sheep. You see, you will never love people, saved or unsaved. You will never love people, lovable or unlovable, until you properly love Jesus Christ. That's our priority. And then fourth, love is consistent. Now why does the author begin verse 10 by saying, for God is not unjust so as to forget your work? Well, I think one reason is that these people had suffered early in their Christian life. And they were now facing the prospect of further suffering. In fact, if you turn in your Bible just a few pages to chapter 10 of Hebrews, <clears throat> Chapter 10, verse 32. It says, But remember the former days, when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. They experienced conflict, reproaches, tribulations. These people knew what it was to suffer. And you know what happens at times when you suffer? 
Satan tries to undermine your love for God by whispering in your ear things like this. You trusted in Christ, and look where it got you. Ever since you stepped out in faith in Jesus Christ, you have had nothing but problems. Is this the way a loving God would treat you? You see, Satan wants to get you to start to think that either God is unjust or that God has forgotten you. And so the writer of Hebrews says, God is not unjust and God has not forgotten you. You see, love is consistent. Even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of tribulations, God's love is consistent. You see, God's love is not measured by your circumstances. And that's why I think sometimes we have to go back to that simple little song that some of us learned in childhood. Jesus loves me, this I know, because the Bible tells me so. You see, my circumstances may say otherwise, but God's love is consistent. And I think maybe this morning we ought to just take a moment to apply that to our hearts. Because I know that some of you here are experiencing trials and hardships in your life. And those trials and those hardships are causing you to doubt God's love. Maybe the trial for you is other Christians who have disappointed you. Maybe the church has not been all that you thought it should be. Maybe other believers have criticized you when you're simply trying to serve the Lord. And the enemy has come along and caused you to think that either God is unjust or that He has forgotten you. Let me tell you something. If you buy into that thinking, pretty soon you will have a pity party and you will cut yourself off from other believers because they've hurt your feelings and Satan will have you right where he wants you. We have to come back to the fact that it's for the love of the Lord and His name that we're motivated to do everything that we do. Love is consistent. And then fifth, love is practical. Our love is directed first and foremost to the Lord, but who is it that we serve? He says we serve the saints. Now, the saints, by saying the saints, he's not talking about some canonized group of people already in heaven. A saint is anyone who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a saint. You say, well, Dan, I feel more like an ain't. No, you're a saint. That means a holy one. That's who you are in the eyes of God, and that's who you should be becoming in your practical life as a believer. And so he says, we love the Lord, but that's practical because we serve other believers. People often ask me, well, and how do I show my love for the Lord? Well, it's real easy. You show your love by the Lord, for the Lord by loving His children. It's real practical. The Russian author Leo Tolstoy wrote a story entitled, Where Love Is, God Is. It's about an old Russian cobbler who had lost his wife and all of his children. He was bitter and lonely and wanting to die. A traveling monk stopped by to visit him, and after hearing his story, he told him that he must not question God's ways. God has a purpose for your life. In fact, he told him that his despair was the result of living for himself, and so he must learn to live for God. He tells the cobbler to read the Gospels to learn how to live for God. And so the monk leaves, and, and the man does what he says. He begins to read the Gospels, and he's transformed. He begins to become content and at peace, and every night he opens the Gospels and he pours over the Word of God. One night he falls asleep, reading Luke chapter 7 about the Pharisee who did not welcome Jesus into his home. And suddenly, whether in a dream or, or what the old man doesn't know, he hears a voice calling his name, Martin, Martin, look out in the street tomorrow, for I shall come. Well, the next day, while he's working, 
he keeps watching out the window. He sees an old man that he knows and he invites him in, gives him some tea. He tells the man about Christ's love and mercy that he's been reading about in the Gospels. The old man listens with tears running down his cheeks and left thanking him for his hospitality. A while later, Martin saw outside a woman dressed in a shabby summer clothing and trying to keep her crying baby warm. He invited her in to sit by the fire. She was destitute and had pawned her shawl the day before to get something to eat. He fed her and gave her an old coat to wrap around her baby and gave her the money to go get her shawl out of pawn. Later he saw a poor woman with a basket of apples for sale. A boy tried to steal one and she caught him by the hair and was threatening to take him to the police. Martin went outside, calmed her down, and got the boy to ask for forgiveness and got the woman to forgive him. He then told him about Jesus' parable of the master who forgave the servant an incredible large debt, only to have the servant go out and mistreat a fellow servant who owed him a slight amount. After listening, the woman picked up her heavy load to go, but the boy offered to carry it for her, and so they went off together. It was evening now. Martin went inside, lit his lamp, and opened his Bible. He intended to read where he had left off, but his Bible opened to another place. And before he read, he heard a voice call out, Martin, it is I. And he looked up and saw the old man, and then he vanished. He started to read again, and he heard another voice say, Martin, it is I. And he looked up, and he saw the woman and her baby and she vanished. He started to read again and he heard another voice say, Martin, it is I. And he looked up and saw the woman selling apples and the boy. And then he looked down and he began to read. I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. And then he went down to the bottom of the page and he read, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you did it to me. And Tolstoy concludes, and Martin understood that his dream had come true and that the Savior had really come to him that day and he had welcomed him. Love is practical. We show it toward God by serving others. Then let me say one other thing about love. Love is costly. The phrase in verse 10, work and love, can be translated work of love. Paul makes a similar statement in 1 Thessalonians 1.3, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love. You see, it's clear from Scripture that love is work. Love is labor. Love is not simply spontaneous and effortless. You don't lay on the couch and feel love. You get up and do love. It's costly. It takes effort. It involves sacrifice. You think it was easy for Jesus to go to the cross? No. He sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. And He is our example of love. We are to love the way He loves. Can we be honest for a, minute, for a moment? Whenever we are challenged in our heart to show love for someone else, it is always inconvenient. But that's the nature of love. Because love is costly. So the first characteristic he mentions is love, and love is not an optional character quality in the Christian life. Love is not an elective course in the Christian curriculum. Love is a very, at the very heart of my faith. If I have genuine saving faith, then I will demonstrate love in my life. And here the writer says it's one of the things that accompanies salvation. The second thing he mentions is hope in verse 11. Verse 11 says, And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. The Christian life is not a sprint, it's a marathon. 
And the reward comes at the end of the race. That's where hope comes in. Now let me tell you, biblical hope is not uncertain. We use that term that way today. We say, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. Well, the, the Bible doesn't use the term that way. When the Bible talks about hope, it's talking about confidence about the future. And what I find interesting about this verse is that it tells us full assurance of hope is tied in with diligent service. And the diligent service is an expression of love, which tells me that love and hope are tied together. So when love is active, hope is full. Isn't that interesting? That's a paradox. When my love is active, my hope is full. When I am pouring out my life in love, I am being filled up in the area of hope. John states it this way in 1 John 3.14. He says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. When I am loving the brethren, it brings assurance to my heart. It's the way that I know that I'm genuine. You see, the, the bedrock of our assurance is the Word of God. The Word of God promises eternal life to those that believe in Jesus Christ. But the question is, how do I know that my faith is genuine saving faith? How do I know that what I have is different from the person described in chapter 6, verses 4 to 6, who was enlightened and tasted, who came up to the edge of salvation and experienced some pre-salvation things, but never got saved? How do I know the difference? The biblical answer is that your life should reflect the reality of what God has done in your heart. You see, the more that you can see God working through you, the greater will be your assurance of hope. And that's the second thing that accompanies salvation. And then the third thing is faith in verse 12. That you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now that word sluggish is the same Greek word used up in chapter 5 and verse 11, translated dull. So here is the antidote to being dull of hearing. He says you are to imitate. That's the Greek word mimetai, from which we get our word mimic. We are to mimic those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now who is he talking about? Who is it that we are to imitate? Well, he's referring to the Old Testament saints. And we know that because when we get to verse 15 of this chapter, he uses Abraham as an illustration of one who patiently waited and obtained God's promises. He's going to expand on that list later in Hebrews when we come to chapter 11. He's going to give us a whole chapter full of Old Testament saints who lived by faith. And of course, from our perspective today, we can add to that those in the New Testament that are examples to us. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and verse 1, be imitators of me just as I am of Christ. The question I would ask you today is, who are you imitating? Who are you copying your life after? You say, well, I'm copying Jesus. Fine, that's, that's our ideal model. But there are other people that impact us. There are other people that we look at and say, you know, I'd like to be like that guy. I'd like to be like Mike. I'd like to dress like that person. I'd like to follow the activity. Who are you following in life? The writer here says we should imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And notice how closely he accompanies faith and patience. At the end of chapter 11 and verse 39, he makes it clear that the Old Testament saints died without realizing the promises in their lifetime. They lived their whole lives by faith and they never got anything but persecution. You see, that's what makes them heroes of faith. Because God's promises are fulfilled in eternity. And so faith is focusing on the unseen rather than seen. Faith is focusing on the future rather than the present. And faith must be something that I exercise day after day after day. That's patience. 
And as the writer tells us in verse 12, one of the ways to build our faith is to imitate men and women of faith. I would suggest to you that you go to the Bible, go to the Old Testament, and do character studies of some individuals there. Study the life of Abraham or David or Joshua or Deborah or Daniel. Study these people. Not only the positive things that they did, but the negative things that they did and learn from their lives. And not only that, but I would suggest to you that you read biographies of Christians in history. Read about people like Jonathan Edwards and David Brainerd and Jim Elliott. Read about people who walked by faith. Make your heroes men and women of faith and model your life after them. I should come to your house and come into your bedroom and you should have a poster of David on the wall. You, you should be modeling your life after people who lived and died by faith. You know, for some of us, it's half time. Some of us have lived, I've lived more than half my life already. I'm in the third quarter. Some of you are at half time. You look back on your life and I would ask you, how have you done? Some of you say, well, I'm trailing. We're behind. Well, it's half time. And I would challenge you to take your eyes off the frustrations of the past and look with confidence to the future. And I would challenge you to take the words of this pep talk this morning. Go out there and apply to your lives the things that accompany salvation. Faith, hope, and love. And make your goal in the second half not just to imitate others, but to have others imitate you. We're going to have the praise team come and close our time with a praise song. As we sing together, I'm going to ask those who were baptized to come this morning. I know there are others who want to join the fellowship this morning. You come as well. I don't know how God has challenged you today, but I pray that this would be a moment when He speaks to your heart. If you would like to pray with someone this morning, you come down as well as others are coming. Let's stand and sing together. Mm -hmm.